On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we are going to be talking about the myths of sports betting. Rufus and I are going to talk about a lot of things we've talked about in the past, but we're going to go into more detail in terms of things like what a sharp line moves or in terms of what's the optimal strategy for playing blackjack or whether the idiots at your blackjack table, whether they really cost you money or not. And I bet you guys are really interested to hear the answer to that. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, who we managed to disparage on this app, on this episode. So hopefully they don't take our sponsorship away. But it is a great app to get great uh, content and track lines and track uh, all of the your bets and your picks, etc. So you can download it for free on the Google Play and the Apple Store. So you should do that today. And with that, let's start the process. Welcome to another edition of the Bet the Process podcast. This is a very special edition inspired by some stupid conversations we've had on Twitter and a largely entertaining but sort of um, functionally or some content was kind of wrong from the Bill Simmons Vegas podcast. Uh, Rufus and I are going to be doing our top 10-ish, 11-ish myths of gambling in no particular order and kind of dissecting them and discussing them. So hopefully this will create some great fodder for the Twitter sphere as we talk through things. So the first one I want to talk about are money management strategies like Martin Gale. Actually, Simmons often calls these Ponzi. What? I don't know what he calls them. He calls Ponzi, them like schemes. Ponzi schemes or he calls them like, uh, yeah, he calls them. So, so Simmons is anti-Martin Gale too. I mean, I'm, that's good. He's not. He he isn't. He isn't anti Martin Gale. I don't think he fully understands Martin Gale. I don't. I don't think he thinks about it Martin Gale enough to know whether it's right or wrong. I think cousin Sal. I don't. I don't know if they were against Martin Gale. I think that they they kind of believe in the concept of of actually betting. So Martin Gale system, and we've talked about this before. It's it's the concept of betting. Um, you know, let's say you walk up to the blackjack table and you bet ten dollars on the first hand and you lose, then. You bet $20, and then if you lose that, you bet $40, and you keep doubling and doubling and doubling, and eventually you will win, and you will make back whatever you lost with a small profit. But the problem Exactly. With it that, sounds great. Yeah, it sounds 100% that it's going to work, what, 100% of the time it works it, 50% of the time or whatever? Exactly. The problem is, though, there are limits on bets, and you don't have an infinite bankroll. Well, those are the... Yes, and there's no guarantee that at some point you're going to win this bet. Each of these bets is independent. They're not linked to each other. And and this kind of comes back to this idea that like, you know, there is whenever people come up to me all the time and talk to me about blackjack and they're like, Hey, let me, let me tell you about my, my strategy. Uh Tell tell me why this wouldn't work. And they'll say things like, Hey, if I win, I'll double it to 20. And then if I win again, I'll double it to 40. And then if I lose, I'll go back down. And, and it's just, it's interesting because people all think that maybe there is some strategy beyond, you know, I always just say like, listen, just learn basic strategy perfectly. And if you can learn how to count cards, that's great. But learning basic strategy perfectly will at least get you to roughly 
about a half a percent disadvantage to the casino, depending on what the rules are. And, you know, like one of the things that was interesting is on the Simmons podcast, they actually have David Chang on, um, the guy that does uh, Momofuku, an unbelievable chef. But he, uh, and he knew a little bit, I mean, he knew enough to surrender in blackjack, which to me is like next level, right? You're supposed to surrender a 16 versus a 9, 10, or ace. ace. And a 15 versus a 10, if you're playing just regular basic strategy, those are the four hands that you're supposed to surrender. And he knew that, which I thought was 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 pretty good. He At least he knew to surrender a 16 versus a 10. Um, not a lot of people know well, that, I mean, but... Yeah, I mean, that that's solid. But, but I think that, um, I mean, the, the big thing with Martingales or with any strategy is that, like, basically changing your bet sizes... Um, in a way, well, card counting works because you change your bet sizes in a way that you're betting more when you have an advantage and betting the minimum amount when you don't have an advantage. But or not unless, you, sorry, or yeah, exactly. I mean, if you could do that, but I mean, the, a, a martingale strategy, uh, a strategy that is made up of negative expected value bets, if you put them into a portfolio, um, unless unless the bet timing um, takes advantage of the things that card counting does, like there's no way you're actually going to create a profitable strategy out of it. I have a good friend of mine who told me his amazing blackjack strategy that helped him pay, pay for business school at UNLV. And he, you know, he would sit down at the table and basically he'd have, when he got to like up 10%, so it was kind of like Martingale-esque, he would leave the table. And apparently everything reset then because he's like, you can always get to up 10%. Some, you know, and then he would go to a different table or a different casino. I think, it re- I think you had to go to a different casino for this actually to work. I'm not sure if it's a different table. Maybe it's just a different deal. Do you have to change? Know, did you have to change your clothes? You might. Or? I mean, maybe if you just like put them inside out, <laughs> that might yeah, work. I mean, the, the the funny thing is like, again, like all of these things come back to the idea that if you don't have an advantage, like a real statistical advantage, meaning like your card counting or in sports betting, you're you're you know you have a model or whatever. There's no way to beat the system. You can exactly. you can beat you can you can sort of beat variance or be on the positive side of variance over time. And and maybe that's maybe, you know, maybe that's what this guy's trying to do somehow is like capitalize on variance, but over the long haul, it's not going to work. It might work in a short-term sample and you might fool yourself, but it's not going to work over a long-term. It just, just doesn't work. And there was this other guy on Twitter. I was going to say a segue, the segue is well into parlays, but was that one of our other, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. The par, the parlays, the whole parlay thing. Cause people, some people say like, I mean, parlays are how sports books make money. I mean, they, they the, the sports books hold on parlays generally are like thirty to forty percent, like on parlay cards. Um, like those eight teamers are just gold for them. But a parlay isn't inherently a bad thing, even if it's of independent events. What a parlay does is it magnifies either your edge or the house's edge, whichever, like whoever has the edge, it multiplies it. It's like compounding interest. And so, just because, I mean, parlays are actually they could be they're a good tool if you're a good better, but um, and you're betting a small bit, like, if, if, and you're not moving lines. Um, but I don't think they're inherently bad. But the thing is, 98% of betters are losing betters. So that's why most sharps say, don't recommend parlays, because especially to like, you know, your general public, because parlays, for the most part, unless you're one of these 2% of betters that are winning betters, um, are going to decrease your bankroll much quicker than betting straight bets. Yeah, and there was the guy on Twitter that basically was saying, and he got in a fight with a lot of Twitter, including you and I, that you should take two big. A lot of people like to take these two big favorites in the in the um, in baseball because 
then when you parlay them together, it basically like looks a lot better as a bet because if you lose, you only lose, you know, like whatever one unit as opposed to losing like, you know, 2.8 units or something like that. And his strategy was even worse because he compounded it with this idea that like if you lose the first one or sorry, when you win the first one, assuming that the games aren't happening at the same time, then you can go and hedge back and lock in a win. So essentially what, what he's what he's done is he's you know crossed the the VIG spread twice and now is like really made the actual um odds his odds even worse than they were before. Again, like the, the idea of parlaying two favorites, it sounds good because you feel like you have less at stake, but it's really bad because you're actually now needing these two events to happen just to win back, you know, whatever the bad line or the bad odds that the casino is giving you. Right, Jeff. But let's say, let's say he has edges on both these favorites. Right. But he doesn't, I mean, like that's not, that's not like if he believes, go ahead. If if he has an edge on both of these favorites, then parlaying them is going to have a higher expected value than betting them straight. Sure. Now the reason, the reason you don't talk about like sharps, um, parlaying things like that is because you're not going to get as much volume down on a parlay and you're going to because it, the limits are not as high and you'll you'll move the lines yeah we've talked about this too it, it it also increases your variance too right which i think is 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 tough um well in his case too actually in his case it wouldn't because you're you're parlaying two big favorites so you have a bet with the risk reward profile more like just a regular you know minus 110 type bet 50, right. 50 but type bet, so. I feel like anytime, and this is actually a pretty good myth that you hear people talk about. A lot of times people will make bets with the, with the knowledge or the, the, the thought process that they think they're, they're going to be able to hedge it down the line. Like, Oh, I can yeah. easily be able to hedge that down the line. No, you, you hear it. Like if you listen to Simmons and, 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 uh, and Sal, they say it all the time. Like we, we, you should be able to hedge that down the line. And like, you know, again, like Sal's podcast is super entertaining. So I don't, I don't want to disparage him or, or anything like that. But you know, the the strategy that you're going to make a bet and hedge it down the line is, is it's not, it's it's not a smart strategy. Well, Although especially actually, if you're you know, dealing Ted, with futures, right? Well, Ted, Ted did say that. Um, Ted Knutson, when we were talking about the World Cup, was talking about you know you know, putting on some of these positions on some of these futures on some of these teams where he, you know, thought that the the public perception of these teams going into the World Cup was probably going to be skewed. And that at some point during the course of the World Cup, you know, after these teams had had a couple of good games, you would be able to sort of hedge out of it just because there was value associated. You know, there would be at that point, maybe like the value of what was in the futures bet initially would be gone. So again, like yeah. the... the you know, people ask us about talking about hedging and what we always say about hedging is it is it's it's another bet. And if you have value, um, if you believe there's value in that bet, you know, certainly it's 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 not a bad thing to do, um, but certainly not not when there's no value or when you think that there's there's negative value. It, it's it's a difficult thing to do unless there's some, you know, like money, you know, lifetime changing money that you could lock in at that point, And then it just becomes a different question. So just the risk profile of your life, I guess. Right. I mean, and if I have like a, if I, if I have a hedge that's exactly break even, I will bet, I, I will bet it as much as I can to, to minimize my variance. But that's, uh, yeah, exactly. I would never do that unless the bet actually had an edge on its own. But with, uh, with, with Ted, I mean, I think 
the World Cup is a bit of a different animal because there is so much liquidity out there and there are so many different types of bets. But especially when you're getting into sort of will this team make the final or not make the final? Will this team advance to the semifinal or not? Uh, those bets are going to have, I mean, those bets were available, but, um, but you are going to be paying a, a, a more of a premium. There's more VIG there than than a typical side where you know, I think Pinnacle was dealing like, I think, six or eight cents spread. Not too bad, right? No, not at all. Okay. And I, I, number two, let's move on to number two. Okay. In blackjack, when you're sitting at a table and someone at the table doesn't know basic strategy and they break the rules, i.e. they hit when they shouldn't hit or they stand when they shouldn't stand, they are ruining the table and they are decreasing your chances of winning. So Jeff, wait, when people say this, how angry does, how frustrated does that make you? Because I'm sure it, you deal with this all the time. It doesn't, it doesn't actually make me frustrated because what I love about it, and I don't fault people for believing this because it highlights a very, very, very like simple cognitive bias that we all have, right? Where we want, it's called confirmation bias. And we want to believe and we want to remember details that support uh, a theory that we have. So the idea is that, you know, whenever I tell those people, it doesn't matter. They're like, oh, I don't believe you. You know, I've played blackjack for 15 years and I've seen it happen. And it's absolutely true. And, and I'm like, well, the problem is that there's been like probably 10 times that a dude has hit like soft, you know, his hit like uh, 12 against a six and it's hurt you. And there's probably been 10, 10 times that he's done that and it's helped you. You just don't remember the 10 times that he did it and it helped you because it doesn't support this pre-consisting, you know, this, this prior that you have that um, these people are ruining the table. So, you know, that I, I, I just like it because it gives me a chance to try to ex explain to someone like this really awesome cognitive bias, which is confirmation bias. And we do it. Everyone does it. I mean, I do it all the time. Like we, we want to remember details that support, uh, you know, theory we have already, and we forget details or data. That, that's why you need to be data-driven because you need to like collect data. You need to holistically look at that data and then make an assessment based on the, the complete set of data, not just what you happen to remember. Exactly, that was a great explanation. But just because you know that that bias exists doesn't mean that like your system one, as Daniel Kahneman would say, your system like one, which is sort of uh, the processing you do without thinking. It's like adding two plus two. You could say four. You don't actually having to do calculations in your head. It's yeah, like, I, I know the system, gonna, system two. Right. I mean, I know you know it, but I'm not sure everybody out here. Oh, right. Read, That's uh, true. Kahneman Other people are here besides slow. me. Sorry, I forgot. But they will be. But <laughs> you and I were just book. having a phone great call. Daniel Kahneman's awesome. But yeah. yeah, I mean, just because you know that 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 bias exists doesn't mean it's not still going to affect you. Yeah, exactly. It's a different system. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, optimal strategy for playing craps. Is there one? I'll um, tell you what that is. Not playing. Exactly, Jeff. You remember this? Like I told you that yeah, I had I a I had a policy. I, I had a policy that I. I won't play a, a game unless I have a positive expected value. But no, you but you played crafts with me. Playing crafts with you long term is pro pro probably a positive expected value for me. Just <laughs> because of the connections I make, or you know, yeah. Well, so I think we can do we can do this really quickly. But there's basically only two strategies that you should play if you play crafts. It's either don't pass or pass. And then wait, 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 case, wait. What about the don't come bet? 
The I, I heard all bet. about that from Bill Simmons. Well, there is a don't come bet, but it's not the bet that they were. The, the bet that Ashley is the, the opening bet is pass or don't pass. Come or don't come is like the next bet, which is the same as a pass. Or, it's just a nuance in terms of what he kept saying. He kept calling it the don't come, which sounds a lot more uh, uh, scandalous than the PG don't 13. pass. What's that? I'm going to be honest, though. I, you know, you've tried to explain crafts to me a gazillion times, I feel like. And I just, it, you just don't I, want I, I don't to understand it. I, I don't not, want It's to. not that you can't <laughs> understand it, it's that you don't want to understand it. Well, anyways, they, at the, the Simmons podcast, they were talking about betting the, the don't pass. And the, the, the don't pass has, I believe, slightly better ads than the pass. And, and in both cases, you need to take max odds, which is like the bet that you place behind your pass line bet or the bet that you place. Um, you know, behind your don't pass bet. And that's that bet is the most important bet for you to ever play in a casino if you happen to be playing anything in a casino because that's the only bet in the casino that the casino has zero edge over you. They don't take any VIG. They don't take any percentage. They pay you the true odds of that number coming up. So the example is if you're playing pass line and you a four comes up, you can usually put three times what your original bet was. So if you started betting $25, you can bet $75 behind that. And that bet will get paid the true odds at that point of a four or four coming up before a seven comes up, which is two to one. And so you'll get paid 150 on that uh, $75 and then you'll get your $25 back. So that, that's the that's the best bet in the casino that you actually should play. Now, people have asked about playing don't pass versus pass. There's some, you know, odd sort of cultural thing about playing don't pass. And, you know, I don't, again, like there's no, there's no math to either way. Like, like I said, I think don't pass is slightly better, but it's, it's kind of a wash. Um, it's just a matter of like how you want to feel at the craps table. And I don't play craps to make money. I play to sort of have fun and, and get into it with people. And I think some people that are the don't pass people are very much the contrarians. Like, I one time played blackjack. I sorry played craps in Vegas with some of this with a couple of the guys that are in the Seville group on Twitter, and they all played don't pass, which um, shouldn't surprise you. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the optimal strategy for blackjack when we were talking about Martingale systems, but I, I can cover that pretty quickly. That was one of the things we were talking about. If you're not counting cards, you should learn basic strategy perfectly, and I, and I mean learn it perfectly because there are some ones that are like hard to remember edge cases or things that aren't necessarily intuitive and you should just download a, a chart and, and memorize it and do that. And then you should also make sure that whatever tables that you're playing at have the best rules possible. They don't hit soft 17. They don't, they pay three to two on blackjack. You know, they allow you to surrender all those types of things. If you make sure you're playing at those and most of the, a lot of strip casinos, at least when I used to play had those rules. So just make sure you're playing at those rules and and then don't don't take insurance. Um, even when you have an, a blackjack yourself, don't take even money. Giving up that odds. The only time you take insurance is if you're counting cards and you know that that insurance bet, i.e., like you know that how many tens are left, so that you know that the insurance bet is actually positive EV. So it's very simple. Just learn basic strategy perfectly. Play at a table with really good rules. Make sure that they have the best rules, and then just you're you're r- roughly playing an even game against the casino at that point. Okay. Another near and dear, uh, and I just want to say for everybody, you're you're getting you're getting blackjack strategy from the master himself. 
<laughs> but is, again, like blackjack like... is not it's not a nuanced thing, right? Getting strip like blackjack strategy for me is you can just read it online. Like there's some it's not like it's not like getting, you know, sports gambling strategy from you, which is much more nuanced and art and much more difficult, right? That's blackjack strategy is is simple. But I appreciate I mean, it's like the... getting a lesson. It's getting a lesson on the history of saber metrics from Bill James. There you go. There you go. Uh, laying big favorites is always a bad bet. Only idiots lay big favorites. Well, I think we both well, laid mean... a big favorite in the McGregor Mayweather fight, right? Yeah, I think neither of us bet bet enough though. Yeah, I know. When I look back on it. I remember like how much I had in my account and I was basically like, I'm just going to bet this. But if I bet all of this and lose, then I have nothing left in my account. So maybe I shouldn't do that. I mean, here's the thing. I don't have a model. Like neither of us have a model for it. And so we were, I mean, it it definitely seemed like the sharp side, but at the same time, I'm not as confident on something. If I, if I don't have like an empirical, you know, if I, yeah, that was the thing that I asked a real, yeah. Every smart professional better that I've talked to was on, you know, Mayweather in that fight and they were on it big. And, but most of them I ta- I've talked to, I've talked to them after the fact. And I've asked that exact question, which is like, how do you deal with the fact that there's not really analytics around this that can sort of like support that this is like a ridiculous price and that the real price should be like minus, you know, a thousand or, or whatever it is, you know? Um, it, it just, it just didn't seem right. And Ted, you know, when we had that podcast and if any of you guys haven't listened to the Ted Knudsen podcast, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. But he made the point like, well, you pretty much just think about all the possible outcomes that you're worried about. And as long as you're comfortable with those, then go, go for it kind of thing. And like, yeah, I mean, what were the possible outcomes? How is he lose that somehow, you know, McGregor landed one big punch and like, you know, Mayweather is shown that he's like pretty damn hard to hit <laughs> and like True. he's pretty damn hard to hit for like really good boxers so an mma fighter fighting his first you know real boxing match in quite some time and i know mcgregor had boxed when he was younger but at this time like this was not this this was like oh you know i said this to ted that this was like a once in a lifetime you know, yeah, just once in a lifetime opportunities a lot so he's I, like I they happen every three years right yeah something like that uh, what do you think is, is there another is there another one that you would call like this like you can remember being this sure thing where you felt like there was that much edge another big favorite i lay every year is the the no safety in the super bowl that's mm. i mean because the true odds are i think something like minus 1600 um depends on how many years you're using but, but don't they make that spread so big like the vig on those bets so big that it, like it, there's not value on them anymore it is um Although actually the overround isn't that huge just because um because you're dealing with such like I mean one of the numbers is so big. Right. Got it. Um, got it. It looks it looks but, big, but the actual percentage big, is not that big. But that's why I think kind of the overround sometimes can be deceiving though, because you could have something that's like um I don't know, like minus ten thousand and right. like plus a thousand and it's not that the overround isn't like huge. Um yeah, explain but what the overround is. Overround is adding up the implied probabilities uh, for each side. So, um, basically, it, it says how what the the book is expecting to return. So, if you were betting at a fair casino and they were giving you fair odds, um, you would have something like minus a thousand plus a thousand, and um, 
which would be 10 elevenths and one eleventh, and it would add up to 100%. However, the sports books are making money because they're giving you unfair odds. They're basically taking a commission and that commission, um, you can kind of see how much they're taking by adding up the implied probabilities of each of the bets. Yeah. But so, but, but the, the no safety, like you'd see something like minus, like, actually, I think I got minus 700 it, it, what, one place one year, like minus 700 plus 450 or something. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a lot of juice, but at the same time, the juice is, they're protecting themselves. The juice is worth the squeeze. Say it. The juice is worth the the juice is always worth the squeeze. There we go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, the problem is, I mean, that's just the public is only betting on the safety there because the public loves the lottery mentality. It's the same thing generally on the the no defensive or special teams touchdown, the two point conversion attempt, the two point conversion. Um, yeah, people like the concept yeah. of winning a little, betting a little to win a lot. Yeah, it's but sort of human nature. So here's so back to the the or the myth we were covering is laying big favorites is always a bad bet. Now, do you think that comes from the fact that? I guess the, I don't know, uh, people say that sharps always bet the dogs and under. And so that's why a big favorite must be a bad bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the dogs and the under thing comes more just from the prevalence of, of NFL, um, you know, where, where, um, there was a time where that was sort of the case. I think, um, I'm assuming that there was sort of a time, but I think in terms of, you know, the, like some of the biggest value bets that I've seen are these big favorites um, in these certain situations, like McGregor Mayweather, like the no field goal. Probably there was a time where like the no overtime was probably value. And, and I know that, you know, you always talk about in your Super Bowl props that you're rooting for a lot of nothing to happen, right? You're rooting for a lot of like, like not this, not that, like a lot of unders necessarily on, on player props and things like that. There's just this natural skew where people want to bet on things to happen versus things to not happen. Exactly. So, and and also people don't like people generally don't like laying laying a lot of money. Like that's that's not something that people want. I think it's interesting because it's almost the counter though of what we were talking about in baseball. Because like even when we had Mitchell on, he was talking about how back in the day there was a lot of value on these big dogs because these big favorites were just way way too high. I mean, I'll say this though: you can tell he hasn't been betting baseball this year because there have been some big numbers this year with the, especially the Astros at home. Yeah, no, no, and, like and Kershaw, Kershaw's had some big numbers, you know, this year, and uh, I think like Kluber's Verlander. had some big numbers. Severino's had some ridiculous numbers. So uh, uh, Chris Sale, Chris Sale has yeah, had like Chris a minus. Sale. There was that's true. Chris actually, Sale was like Chris Sale was like I, minus three something on the road the other I know, day. I know. Right? I laid minus two ninety five on that actually. Yeah, and then, but, that, but then like the line, the line closed laid. like minus. It closed like, like minus three sixty. It did exactly. I, yeah. I was happy you with got, that line move. You got a lot of CLV there, buddy. You can take that CLV. Yeah. I told you when I start my uh, company that you can convert CLV to Bitcoin. We're gonna be <laughs> you're gonna be rolling in it. It's like it's like a version of prop swap where you can actually convert CLV to uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, and I understand how that's gonna work. Yeah. Well. That's why I'm an entrepreneur because I'm going to figure that shit out. Um, okay. Why so, why do we not like it when people quote Bovada? Where is Bovada? Bovada is, is Bovada on the Strip? Where is it? I think it's the I think it's a state. It's it's a state of its own. So we have 51 states. I don't know if it's a U.S. state. 
Oh, it's a state in .lv, which is Latvia, right? It's not, <laughs> I like it's Bovada.lv, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, Las Vegas, Bovada, Las Vegas. No, it's Bovada, Latvia. The LVs, the, the, the things that come after the dot are countries, people. They're, you know, like LV, LY. Like a lot of people were using LY for a while. That's Libya. Um, EDU. So it's a great country. EDU is a country. EDU is a country. Yeah, definitely. Uh, .co is a country. That's um, Colombia. Is it? It is. Well, I didn't know that. See? Yeah. I was uh, just there. So, so we don't like it. Why why do you not like it? Okay, so A, it's just one sports book, but you, the lines people are quoting from Bovada are their square lines. So Bovada deals two different sets of lines. They deal a set of lines that are catering to sharps and catering to most people, recreational betters. So basically the line that you see is gonna be the line for square betters, which is gonna overinflate basically every favorite. So they're not real lines. And then it's the not, thing, exactly. Thing that, it's not a line that a someone that actually has a clue is going to be able to bet. The other thing that drives me crazy about it is that people are always quoting like the marketing prop bets from them. And these are bets that they're going to take like very little action on. And when we, by little action, we're talking like $10 or $20. And they just have these things up for marketing purposes because they want people to quote and talk about Bovada and talk about the lines on them. So when they when they when they put things up like, you know, who's going to be the next coach or will LeBron, you know, what country will LeBron be flying from and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just irrelevant because it's not like a real market. It's not it's not like a market you know, if if you were saying like, oh, so and so believes that you know Donald Trump has X percentage of chance to become the next president based on these betting markets, if you know that that's not a liquid market or you know that's not a market that you can actually put any money down, who cares what the market is saying? And and that's the other problem um, that I have with. It. And then I don't know, but I've heard you know I've never dealt with Bovada, but I've heard that they aren't necessarily the most uh, the best at sort of uh, paying people back and things like that. I don't know if that's true. Um, there was a time when I think that that people said that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've never been in Bovada in my life. Better. I don't know if you have or not, but I've never been in there, so I have no idea what it's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just always I like literally got off the plane one time in Las Vegas and told my driver that I wanted to go to the Bovada because I heard they had a really good sports book, and he could, we couldn't find it. We looked it up, and, and then I was like, oh, it's not in Las Vegas, I guess. All right. When is the best time to bet? (laughs) When is the best time to bet? When lines open or when they close? That's a tricky question because when lines open, the limits are a lot less, but the market tends to be less efficient. And when lines close, you're able to get more down, but the market is going to be sharper. So I would generally say the best time to bet, if you're is for for your for most betters um, who probably do not have ridiculous bankrolls and aren't up against the limits. The best bet is to bet early. So, right. And then this actually dovetails well into the next question, which is about a small bankroll being a disadvantage, right? So we'll get into that. Yeah. So I think most people think that, I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say this to me, like, oh, if they had a bigger bankroll, they'd be a successful sports better. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because you can actually make a much bigger return percentage on a smaller bankroll. You're not up against limits and you can play smaller market sports, which are less efficient. Like I got my start betting betting props basically, um, which there were bigger edges there. I wasn't able to get that much down, but you know, props. I bet some like first quarter stuff in the NFL and college football, some derivatives. But um, and it also so it it also opens you up to being able to uh, increase your EV by parlaying by parlaying some bets, which 
um if they as we said before if they all have edges you, you're going to get a well back in those days too you could probably then. you could probably do correlated parlays you were probably doing you could that and then yeah i remember i'd be parlaying all the uh the home dogs and the unders in baseball um like with the with the higher totals back like this is like in 2008 2009 i yeah um that that was quite good for a time but and the reason yeah, the home dogs and the under were a good play it parlay is because if the home dog if the home team is winning that's one fewer at bat right exactly it's either a nine inning game or an eight and a half inning game and if it's the if the road team is favored um or sorry if the home if the home team is favored then the game is expected to only be eight and a half innings whereas if, if the road team is favored it's a full nine inning game and so the road if the home team wins it ends up most likely being only an eight and a half inning game yeah but, i mean i think i think the small bankroll thing is interesting just because you know again like there's a lot of advantage to not having size in your bets like you can shop for lines a lot better um you can bet you know you can bet opening lines um it's just there's just a lot more that you can do and and, and like you said you can bet a lot of different types of bets um that have you know that have value where um you know like people will ask me why don't i bet x y or z and i'm just like it's just there's just not enough size there to really matter um you know that's the reason that i don't typically don't like look a lot at prop bets either because there's just not enough you can't get enough down um so anyways i agree with you there i think the super bowl is the only time i'm really doing it's the only time i do prop bets because there's just a lot of volume is that sad for you because you used to be the king of props that you know really it's not sad anymore. because i i kind of hated it it's kind of why i don't do dfs too because props are so labor intensive if you're doing it every week, like my first, my first uh, football season um, after when I was betting for a living, I would get three hours of sleep a night on, or sorry, three hours of sleep, I think total between Friday and Saturday nights, just because there was so much freaking work. <laughs> it was, I, I couldn't do that now. And so, I mean, you have to track injuries. You have to track weather. You have to track absolutely everything. All right. Moving on to bookmaking theory. Um, the myth is that the lines or the odds makers should always set a line that represents the true odds. Um, and I don't, I think we all think that this is not true, right? Because you can make that 10% or whatever and, and that'd be fine, but that's just not going to be a lot of money. You'd, you'd rather almost take a side and well, get a position on and, and have a position. And if you can have a position, and have the 10% working in your favor, well, well, that's great. So I have a good hypothetical example here. Uh, let's say that the Cowboys are a true seven-point favorite against the Redskins. Now, but the public thinks that they're a 10-point favorite. So if you set a spread of 10, you're splitting the action. Now, that plus 10 on the Cowboys is going to win a lot more than that minus 10 is, but it's not going to matter to you as a bookie because you've, you've already locked in a risk-free profit because you could have the people betting on each side. You have no liability. Now, if you set a spread of seven, you're going to get a lot more people betting on the Cowboys minus seven, and um, but it only has a 50% chance of winning. So you're still going to have the same expected profit, but since you're going to get way more people betting on the minus seven, you're going to have a lot more variance. So the same expected profit, but more variance. Now, if you set a spread of like eight and a half or something, you get more people betting on the Cowboys. Let's say you maybe get 70% of the bets on the Cowboys, 30% on the Redskins, but the Redskins is the correct side. So you're taking a position and you're basically betting with the VIG. And you're, that way you're maximizing your, um, your profits that way. 
Now, interesting story. I was in um, I was in Las Vegas the summer of 2008 doing an internship, and I'd actually before this I had actually written a uh, uh, I spent six weeks researching um, and writing a literature review on all the academic research pertaining to sports, all the academic research on sports betting as it pertains to financial markets for this professor at Yale. Uh, Nick Barbaris, I think he had to referee some paper on it. And so I got a nice theoretical understanding of sports betting before I went out there. And so I was, um, at the time, LVSC was in the American Wagering Building, which also Leroy's, uh, it housed Leroy's, which is uh, a defunct sports book. But I was talking to, I got to meet the the sort of lead trader there. Um, he's passed away, sadly, but he, he was this sort of short... Um, I think he was smoking a cigar, short guy smoking a cigar, extremely fat, like kind of the sort with a thick New York accent. And I was like asking him about, you know, I was like, theoretically, you know, you can make more money if you set a spread, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was being kind of a know-it-all. And he was like, theory, theory, and theory, a penis don't fit in a butthole. <laughs> so that was, that was my intro- introduction to the world of, of sports betting. Oh, in theory, a penis doesn't fit in a butthole. I don't know if that's true. In theory, in practice, different story. Okay, let's move on to sharp line moves. <laughs> um, so I'll make fun of uh, sports action here a little bit um, because people are giving us crap about that. You know, again, we don't take any money from sports action. They just help us pay for the the production of this podcast and. You know, maybe that'll change in time in terms of whether we are affiliated with them. Obviously, like Sports Action, the app, the actual app was what we, we got involved with. And then um, they became involved with the Action Network. And, and we've been critical of the Action Network and the content on there. Um, so anyways, wait, maybe we need I, to be more. What's that? I, I will say that their, their, their whole gambling Olympics thing is, is pretty entertaining to read about. Yeah, they have. Just there's some good content there. It's entertaining, and I agree. Like I, I actually told, I think I told Chad or someone like that. I said, you know, that that was that was a pretty funny, funny thing that they're doing. Um, I mean, it's the kind of thing that I, I don't know about you, but it's the kind of thing I would do with my with my friends. I bet with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's you know? that's kind of thing. Those and those guys, like some like Brandon Adams, certainly is legit. I mean, Brandon is a very legit dude. Um. Anyways, so the concept of sharp line moves, and this is like. I think they have this in the app now. And and uh, Brian was once asking me, he's like, so would you want to know this percentage, who was on this percentage of this games? And would you want to know if this, and, and this all this crap, right? And I was actually talking to an entrepreneur, I won't disparage them, who has a company that is doing this sort of stuff too. And I was just like, one, I asked, like, where are you getting the betting data from? Because if you're getting the betting data from like, you know, Bovada or any of these places, there's not sharps that are actually betting in these places. So what does the data even mean to know that there's a sharp line move or reverse line movement or all this kind of stuff? I just think all this stuff is just, just, it's just the narrative to try to create more content. And the reality is that there's zero value to me as a better. So I don't care about it. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I think that <laughs> I, I rendered you speechless with my diatribe on sharp line moves. I was, I was taking a nice gulp of water. Oh, okay, got it. It was refreshing. Did you fall asleep? I thought you fell asleep during my answer or something. I, I think that's the whole problem. We've talked about this before. What is what is sports betting content? 
that is not picks, right? I mean, I think that it's us spewing about penises fitting into buttholes. Apparently, that's what it it's is. True. I mean, did, by the way, did you see that comment on your uh, on Twitter about uh, the, the common myth was that listening to a podcast can about sports betting can make you a winning sports better. <laughs> when you when you get like the the we got some of the uh the OG Seville guys to come out and make some comments like thick slicing and those types of people who really really can go after go after people. So I was excited to get some of their their uh their takes on things which are always uh entertaining slash offensive slash entertaining. Rufus um, isn't actually a dog's name. I liked that one. Yeah, that's but that's not true, right? It it is a dog's name. You, it is. You, it is. It's a dog's and, name, but it's it can be like some dogs' names can be humans also. And you know, I had a dog. I had a boxer growing up named Mike, after, named after Mike Tyson. And my dad and my brother's name is Tom, but my dad would always confuse my brother and the dog. So he'd be like, "Did you let Tom out?" And I was I was <laughs> like, "Tom, you ready to go outside?" That's but, hilarious. That yeah. is hilarious uh okay that one oh this is a good one that you put this one in that one season of any sport is a large or and let's say a large enough sample size so the premise behind this is that at the end of the season like you have 16 nfl games and you go into the playoffs is that a large sample size or not it's small so 256 games so basically, when you say, well, we've watched the whole season and we know how this team is, you don't believe that's necessarily true. Like a team could be um, underrated an entire year or overrated an entire year based on small sample size, which is a crazy concept to think about. But it's it's just when you when you do it, it's it's true. Right. Like any. And is that is that sort of like also why. You don't want to evaluate. You don't want to evaluate based on games, right? You want to evaluate based in smaller sets, right? So you want to invest in, in in the NFL. You want to evaluate based on plays, which is almost like the smallest unit that you can get to. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that it's important to remember when you consider your record in a like your gambling record for a season. I mean, and even so, Massey Peabody, which I'm pretty confident. Um, you know, I think we have a good model, and and who knows if we're going to continue to have an edge like forever but but we've put together an impressive record i feel like over seven years however you would have done better with a larger sample size betting on every college football team that started with the letter o since 2000 in like the last 10 yeah, we've years talked about that this returns one. yeah like and so yeah don't you know well that, don't that, that also comes down bet, bet the letter o teams that also comes back to this concept of like data mining um and, you know, like this is something that I gave Chad uh, when Chad was in San Francisco, I saw him and I gave him a lot of shit about this because I basically was like, dude, you have you guys have these articles where you're talking about this Bet Labs product that you have. And, you you know, you have people like picking these cherry picking these trends from this historical data. And it's just it's just crap. Right. It's like right. it's not real analytics. There's, there's so many reasons that data mining and trends like it's it's hard to even begin talking about this because there's so many problems with it. I mean, when you go back to the fact that like one, you have no idea if this trend was you know causal or or cor- or just correlated. You have no idea whether it's predictive going forward. You have no idea whether the market has adjusted. You have no idea whether the data is stationary. Like there's so many reasons that these things 
aren't good and and won't work. I mean, they might continue to work, but that's going to be probably more luck than anything else. The concept of data mining for for to find you know sports betting trends is is so dangerous and it's so you know again I think it comes back to the fact that people need to find some type of content to talk about and that's why they do it and it it you know maybe it becomes anecdotal and interesting but like you hear on these shows that people talk about these trends where the sample size is tiny and like even getting beyond sample size being tiny you get like there's almost like this progression of like issues with data mining where you start with sample size. Okay, is the sample size big enough? Fine. Then what's the next potential problem? The next potential problem is that this isn't a predictive trend. This is this isn't a causal trend. This is a, just a correlated trend. Okay, well then let's go to the next one, which is like, is this based on you know stationary data or has the market adjusted? Right. Like there's just so many a litany of, of issues that you can go through that that tell you why this data mining and trend analysis is just bad in sports betting. Uh, and I saw one that really bothered me this week. It was, I think, John Ewing talking about the, it was on the Action Network email, the newsletter. And it was about the NBA Summer League and how betting underdogs has been a really good trend like since they started collecting I couldn't, data. I couldn't even read that because it just seemed and, so absurd well, so, to me. I didn't even right, right. So, so, it. I mean, so maybe, under, maybe, do, maybe underdogs are undervalued. That's possible. But then it said... But we can narrow that down even further. If we look at this subset, this is returned this subset of underdogs, it's returned like even oh higher God, on a smaller sample. I'm like sick. I'm like, okay, I can maybe get behind the fact that underdogs might be a little bit undervalued. There could be a reason for that in the summer league because maybe there isn't, I don't know, team chemistry between these guys that have played. And so maybe the teams that have the better talent don't, you know, aren't playing together as much. I don't know. But when when you get to the narrowing down of like, oh, four to seven point underdogs, I don't think that's what it was. But I just remember it was a narrowed down subset. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, it's content. They're just trying to get content out there, unfortunately. Click. I clicked. Uh, I clicked. Yeah, you clicked. You're, clicked, you're, the, you're the clickbait. Uh, I'm the clicker. Okay. couple last ideas. In the NFL, the team that wins covers the spread the majority of the time i think we've covered this before yeah i think th- i think that was a playoff thing right it was like the, i remember yeah we talked about it maybe like the divisional round it was like the team that wins has covered like the team that wins has covered the spread and the x yeah and, and this 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 works better when the spread is smaller that's my insight obviously I know, that's just kidding <laughs> It works yeah. really well when the line is like minus one, or in those rare times when the NFL lines are minus a half. Which I was gonna say, I, I was actually gonna say that. <laughs> I, you know what I've loved about this World Cup betting is like I've actually learned how an Asian handicap works. Which Seriously, no, how long for a long time I didn't, and it makes it actually makes complete sense. Like it, it once you learn it, it makes complete sense. It's like oh, that's a that's actually a really great construct of a, of a bet. It is. It it does what a point spread does for the NFL and basically makes something into yeah. a, a sort of 50-50 type. It adds profile. a granularity level that you wouldn't think would be possible unless you were the smarter person that thought of this Asian handicap thing. It, it allows you to win and push at the same time. <laughs> we're and such, by the way, should we, should, we, should we say what an Asian handicap is in case someone doesn't know? Sure, but we're such noobs when it comes to soccer betting that I feel like I, I, it's I'm like gonna when let... I listen to two people talk about podcasts, talk, talk on sports betting, like about blackjack or something like that. I'm just like, really, should you be talking about this? Like, I don't even know if we should really be talking well, about soccer I, betting because we're such. Noobs. I don't. 
I, I don't think I should be talking about an Asian handicap since I'm a white guy. So I'm going to let you. That's talk. true. Okay. So an Asian handicap is very simple. So in, in, in soccer, and the one thing that's interesting about soccer is that all, all these things like are these bets, unless they are a two advanced kind of thing are all for the, only the first 90 minutes. They don't cover extra time or shootouts or PK if they PKs, if they happen. So they do you cover stoppage time though? Right. They don't cover extra time, which is what they call overtime in soccer. I'm trying to use soccer parlance and not sound like a noob. Okay. So what an Asian handicap is, is you can bet two ways. You can bet on, um, the first thing you can bet on is one team to win, one team to lose, and a draw. So it's a three-way. And then the Asian handicap is actually a sort of point spread. And it can be anything from, you know, even, minus one, minus two. Everyone understands that. Minus a half, I would assume people understand. But it actually can go to quarters and three quarters. So minus a quarter, what that means is half of your bet is on even and half of your bet is on minus a half. If it's minus three quarters, half of your bet is on minus a half and the other half is on minus one. So if the game ends with the favorite winning by one and you got minus three quarters, then you're going to half of your bet's going to push because it's one and half of your bet will win because it was minus a half. Did I do a good job explaining that? You do drinking again. What's that? Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Sharps are on dogs and unders. And bigger, okay. So this is the notion that sharps are on dogs and unders, and I think like we talked about this might have been true one day before, but not necessarily anymore. Correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some there's some smaller market sports where I'll bet like seventy percent plus on favorites because there's just you know, and actually on in horse racing you sort of have a a bias towards um towards underdogs people actually like taking um the underdogs more than they should and so there's where there is value um it's generally on favorites in horse racing at least that's what the the academic literature back in 2008 um found i don't know anything about it since then but but and you know this baseball season actually i think well 59.3% of my bets on totals um or, or by volume on totals, I should say, have been on overs. Though actually, you know, full disclosure, seventy-one and a half percent of my side volume has been on dogs. But I, I do think that dogs and unders historically are better bets. I mean, I think that's just that's a fact. They've they've returned, but that's historically than, right. So that's that, historically exactly right. But that's but you don't know if that's true going forward. You could have bet, I think, every underdog in the NFL in the nineteen eighties and made a profit. Right. Maybe it's just home. Maybe it was home underdog. I'm not sure, but it's not the 1980s anymore. And markets tend towards efficiency. You've mentioned that we should make that our shirts. Markets tend toward efficiency. We should make bet the process shirts and see if anyone would actually would. But anyone actually buy those? Could become the next bar stool and make our money off retail. Will you be my better half? (laughs) Get it? I do get it. I think I am your better half. Uh, anything else that we got? I'm looking at the Twitter stuff. Um, Rufus is definitely a dog's name. So we, we've covered that. Um, anything else on this bankroll management is the real problem for the average better. I don't think that's true. I think the average better just can't beat. Um, I don't, I don't think people, I, I mean, like it's hard to beat like to win enough, like to win a high enough percentage, it's hard to, to get to that. Like it's, it's, I, I don't, I think the average better doesn't have an advantage. So bankroll management doesn't matter. Obviously bankroll management 
is that next phase of whether you're going to win or lose. Because let's say you have a positive EV model. If you don't have bankroll management, you're going to bankrupt yourself by overbetting probably. Um, yeah, so I think most people overbet their, their bankroll based on their edge for sure. Even yeah. people that have small edges. People, yeah. Todd Furman yelled at me about that. No, not Todd, not Todd Furman. I think someone yelled at me after I yelled at Todd Furman about something, but whatever. All right. I think good that's story. good. I think good that's story, a wrap. Bro. What do you think? I think it's a wrap as well. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, hopefully we'll be back in a couple of weeks with maybe some guests. And uh, we're getting close to football season. That's exciting. That's really exciting. I think we should have so, some football guests on. Maybe we'll ready. start getting some football guests on. That sounds good. I mean, it's already what? The next one will be almost August when we do it. So let's do it. So let's thanks, it. guys. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.